Welcome into TYT's The Conversation. I'm your host, Adrian Lawrence, and Happy New Year. So I am bringing you today engineer and land developer, Brian Wright, who's working to create some great opportunities for land development in predominantly black communities that have been underserved. Welcome in, Brian. Thank you, thank you for the opportunity. Yes, so as we now have entered into 2021, we know that the Biden-Harris plan for black America, it includes efforts directly tied to providing greater support, really in acquiring land ownership, banking, lending opportunities, things that have been denied to black communities and business owners. And you're a big advocate for this. And so why is it so critical for black communities to have access to lending? Why is it so critical? Because for years, we have been the capital and we have to figure out how to become capitalist in this society. And um, you know, just for just for an example, in two days or so, you know, uh, I've been I've been pushing this thing like crazy in Birmingham, Alabama. I got a lot of people a little irritated with me because I just believe in the importance of speaking up for the underserved and the underbank and the unbank in Birmingham, Alabama, as well as across the country. So this project that you're currently working on in Birmingham, Alabama, that includes creating commercial development with I'm guessing some probably residential aspect to it, but it's in the Ensley community in Birmingham. And you know, when we think of Birmingham, Alabama, we think of that city of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. where him and his leadership in 1963 with the Birmingham campaign for desegregation, it was huge. So what are you looking to accomplish there to really build on that legacy? Well, I think our community, not just in Birmingham, but across the country, we need to see a successful, thriving, balanced African American commercial district and community. When you really drive around the country and you go to different cities, you just do not see it. You can go to an Atlanta and you can go to Sweet Auburn Avenue district and you see some developments. But then you still see 30% or 40% of the building that look, just look you know, uh, so undeveloped. Or, and I believe we need to figure out how to do that in more of our communities. So for me, Inslee is the perfect community inside of Birmingham, Alabama. And um, I wanna make my impact here. So in terms of doing that uh, and working toward this development that you're working on in this historic city, uh, it's my understanding that you sought valuation for the properties from banks to get funding. And it didn't necessarily go as you had planned to build on that. So kind of what happened there? Okay, all right, all right. Well, first of all, I believe I received the worst appraisal in the entire United States of America. Um, I bought eight commercial buildings, roughly 33,000 square feet. You know, I'm, I'm all into this buy back the block movement. And make a long story short, the bank and the appraisal company compared my commercial buildings inside of the city limits of Birmingham to farmland 14 miles outside of the city. And they compared my buildings to an abandoned car wash. And this was all justified to figure out how to devalue my property. But the worst part about it is I also learned that this type of stuff was happening to a lot of other people in the area, but none of them have ever spoken up because they never thought that they could win their case. Absolutely, devaluing property and redlining is very much a problem. And I know per expert Andre Perry of the Brookings Institute, properties in black neighborhoods are priced 23% lower than their equivalents in white neighborhoods. Also what just in Chicago over the last decade, 
JP Morgan Chase lent 41 times more money in white areas than black ones. So not only are properties being devalued in predominantly black communities, but also the lending isn't there. And so can you tell us what are the next steps for you as you try to develop this historic neighborhood in Ensley, Alabama? Well, the first thing I did was for about six months or so, I was going back and forth to city officials asking for them to advocate on my behalf. And I don't know if it's just too sticky to talk about economic injustice. So no one ever spoke up. So eventually a year or so goes by, my appraisal gets released. I received a $0 appraisal on eight buildings and I only received value for my land. And I had tenants in there. So for the last six months to 12 months, I've just been focusing on finding help outside of the city and in other states. Because locally, uh, when it comes to economic injustice, no one has spoken up for me. Wow, and I, as you mentioned, you're not definitely not the only one, but in terms of help. Uh, so we have the idea that your total project is gonna cost about $5 million to renovate, is that correct? Yes, I believe if I do ex- everything that I envision to do, it will come close to $5 million. Yeah, and you're an experienced property developer. So I, I think that, that's, that sounds, I can rely on that. And I also understand that Greystone, a stellar real estate and investment company, is helping the best that it can to assist you in accomplishing the opportunity that you want to bring to the black community there in Ensley, in Birmingham. But I'm sure Greystone can only do so much. What would you need to get this development made to make this happen? Well, first of all, it's been 30 plus months. So it's not just, you know, it's not just been a few months or a few days. Uh, I feel like I just come to Ensley every day and, and working on proposals, working on plans, and tr- reaching out to people like Greystone. Um, I would love to at least just get the ball started, uh, whether it's renovating one or two of the buildings that I have. You know, the ideal scenario or the dream of dreams is to renovate all eight at the same time. But I believe our community needs to see some development, uh, uh, you know, in the, in the near future in my buildings. And you know there's been a big change, at least hopefully with the election cycle and bringing in new faces when it comes to leadership and government. Have you seen any changes there that could be helpful in terms of getting these changes made in Ensley and also in other communities that can be uplifted that have generally been downtrodden unless they're gonna be gentrified so that generally white communities can come in and change the characteristics of the neighborhood? Well, um- You know, the Community Reinvestment Act, it was weakened over the last uh, year or so. Uh, But it's it's never uh, created the pressure that's needed on the uh, banks uh, to do right in our communities. Uh, There's so many people who have have gone and tried and just given up. Uh, So locally, um, there's an opportunity for uh, this banking summit to take place because I've been screaming like crazy for a year plus. Uh, we have federal regulators uh, will be showing up in, in Birmingham, Alabama on a virtual summit from the FDIC, the Federal Reserve, the Comptroller of the Currency, all because I just could not just stop speaking about how unfair it was that I received this unfair appraisal. But I know it's not just me. It's a lot of others across the country, and a lot of people have reached out to me since it started. Wow. And so this must be, you must be very, very impassioned and very impactful to get these regulators to listen, which is good. But I guess what are the next steps in terms of getting them to act? What do they need to do? 
Well, I'm going I'm to take you back for a second. You said get them to listen. I'm hoping they listen. Uh, the meeting is in a few days, and it's always a fear that the meeting will just be a checkbox. The meeting will just happen. No action will take place. And then, you know, other developers or other small business owners will go to the next bank and there's no pressure put on the banks to do the right thing. So, um, you know, I'm hoping that with my passion and the other people who are doing their part, you know, they can put pressure on the regulators, the banks, the city leaders, as well as um, uh, nonprofit foundations and, and whomever else. So we just need help wherever we can get help from. Absolutely, and I'm guessing there hasn't been significant help there in that area, um, but also throughout Alabama. And so is this something that is impacting at a larger, broader state level? Uh, as I've kind of mentioned, it definitely seems to be national as we saw in Chicago and in other states and cities where we have predominantly black communities. But would you say that definitely the vast majority of Alabama is impacted as well when you have black communities trying to, uh, to uplift themselves? Well, I'll use Birmingham, for example. Uh, Birmingham is the largest city in the state of Alabama. I went to school in Huntsville, Alabama, which is uh, probably the third largest city, maybe the second largest now. And I used to travel for work all over the country, as well as in Montgomery. And to, we are not seeing our developments, especially on the commercial side. We're seeing people going and buying a home and renovating a home, but we are not seeing ownership and development on the commercial side that you know will follow you uh, and follow your family and your legacy, you know, way after you're gone. So um, I'm hoping uh, more and more step up and believe in investing in their communities. Absolutely, because that generational wealth that can open doors and change things in terms of a legacy, and that is something that the Black community has long, very much been denied. And so this Biden-Harris plan for Black America having this element in this feature that looks to make sure that we have more opportunities for land ownership is so powerful and so important. And so if people wanted to learn more about the effort that you are making there in the Ensley community of Birmingham, Alabama, where can they find information? Well, anybody can go to my website at briankrice.com. I do post a lot of stuff on my Facebook page of Brian K. Rice, the community engineer. But I still want people to understand that I am just uh, one of many victims, and uh, I'm just a loud voice in Birmingham because I'm I, I sacrifice everything to come back to my hometown to find a way to to create entrepreneurship programs and mentoring programs and development programs in our communities. You know, so that's what I'm about. All I want to see is success and a healthy, balanced community. At the end of the day, yes, and we we thank you very much for your hard work, and I wish you all the best, Brian. Well, thank you. And welcome back into the conversation. Now we bring in Legal Mind with the insight to help us navigate the recent flood of presidential pardons. Dr. Rebecca Kavanaugh, thanks for joining us, Rebecca. Thank you so much for having me, Adrian. It's my pleasure to be here. Yes, and it's such a pleasure to have you, especially off of Twitter. Now you are on TYT The Conversation. I'm Jazz. And uh, it's also been pretty crazy right now, especially on social media with the Georgia tapes. You know, the tapes heard around the world of Trump's conversation with Georgia state election officials that really dropped this weekend, where the president's kind of trying to subvert the election results in what appears to be a direct violation of federal and Georgia state law. So while he's been issuing tons of presidential pardons right now, we know that they don't extend to state crimes. 
And I know the issue of both federal pardon, self-pardon has been hotly debated. What are your thoughts? Can the president self-pardon? Well, um, this is definitely the question on everybody's lips. And it's the one question that I do not have a definitive answer for, unfortunately. And this is because it really hasn't ever happened before. No president has tried to pardon themselves, so there's just no precedent. Um, we do have uh, President Nixon who was pardoned subsequently by President Ford. And before uh, he resigned, he did seek a, an opinion from the Department of Justice, the Office of Legal Counsel. And they said that no, a president could not pardon himself. So there is that, but there just isn't any jurisprudence on this question. And legal scholars are really divided. So I'm not sure. I do think if the president tries to pardon himself, that is, is something that will definitely be litigated. I think the best thing that he could do, and um, I'm not sure Trump isn't uh, the brightest bulb, uh, is that he could uh, resign and have Pence pardon him. And that would be somewhat akin to what President Ford did. But even if he does that, I'm sorry, what President Nixon did. But even if he does that, I'm sure that it's going to be litigated. I'm sure that there will be some attempt to prosecute him and then that will become a question for the courts. Absolutely. And I love that you say that in large part because you know myself also being a lawyer and I've gotten into it about presidential pardons. I have my own thoughts about it. But by virtue of the fact that you just told it like it is the truth, because I've seen people, uh, these legal analysts go on CNN, NBC, all this stuff and say definitively one way or the other. When any lawyer worth their salt knows that it's not set in stone, we don't know. So it's super nice just to have a legal mind and especially you who are just wrapped up with these degrees and a heavy hitter in the criminal world, having been a Brooklyn public defender for what, 12 years? Uh, you are very knowledgeable in the criminal law space. And so something else I'd love to talk about is pardons. Uh, a little bit more in terms of the pardons that have actually been given now. So in the recent weeks, we've seen outgoing President Trump pardon his children. Uh, Charles Kushner, uh, who's the father of his son-in-law, uh, Michael Flynn, Paul Manafort. Like everybody in the mama is getting a pardon. And I'm wondering, should we be concerned about this wave of rash pardons? Uh, yes and no. I mean, it, anytime there's an abuse of power and corruption in government, it's a problem, right? Like, it, it's always something that we should be concerned about. On the other hand, in the scheme of things, if Paul Manafort gets out of prison early, if Roger Stone doesn't have a criminal record, this is not going to ultimately make that much difference. And my concern is that the discourse around pardons gets so focused on these very small number of pardons that we lose sight of what the pardon power has the potential to be. And the pardon power is a really powerful tool that can be used to uh, right some of the wrongs that exist in the criminal justice system. And ultimately, if you know 40 people are pardoned, it's kind of the world. I think that we're so focused on it says a lot about us as a society. Why do we care so much about whether these couple of people are punished. Why are we so focused on retribution? There are a million other issues here that are much bigger. The Electoral College, 
COVID. These should be the issues that I think we should be focused on as a nation. And you know what, I think that that's a very good observation. And you know, you're the one in doctorate territory in terms of law and making sure that we have that social justice that's going on. And something that we did see in the last administration for Obama that he commuted the sentences of nearly 2,000 drug offenders who were victims of the unjust crime policies of the 80s and 90s. And so that made major change in waves in people's lives. And it had really powerful, significant impact in terms of what you're saying, in terms of making sure we don't lose sight of what the pardon power is, because it seems Trump is using it very self-servingly. Where we have of the 94 pardons he's issued, nearly 75% have advanced his political agenda, 43% have been some kind of personal connection. So what does this really say about who's getting pardons under the Trump administration? Exactly. I mean, it's really a wider question about society. Who do we think is worthy of redemption and who are we valuing? I mean, this is Trump not just issuing pardons to his political cronies, it's Trump issuing pardons to a police officer who sicked her dog on an undocumented immigrant, a border agent who shot an undocumented immigrant, a war criminals, these are the people he's pardoning. And yet we have people in prison, black and brown people serving sentences for like decades in prison for stealing hedge clippers for possessing very small amounts of marijuana. Even for violent crimes, why are they not deserving of mercy and forgiveness? It seems that if you're a white person who commits a crime against black or brown people under Trump, you are worthy of redemption, but not when it's the other way around. Yeah, and that's extremely problematic, that disparity issue. You know, it really also does seem to be appearing in the capital punishment conversation, which has been very active despite this being a lame duck period, where the Trump regime seems to be pushing forward with these death sentences despite questionable verdicts and calls for delay. So how does that sit with you when, as you noted, we look at these pardons here and deciding who gets redemption and who doesn't? Well, that's the other thing. This is where the disparities are the most stark. We see at the very same time that Trump is issuing these pardons, often to people who have killed children or who have committed these horrific crimes, he's executing people who at a rate that we just haven't seen that is unprecedented. So it just really makes a statement about whose lives this administration or this country says are valuable. And it's saying the lives of black people, the lives of poor people, these are not lives that we value. But the lives of white people who kill children are going to be saved. So that's where it's really problematic. I mean, this administration has executed more people this year than any one state. it just, it, this is where the disparity I think is is the most stuck. Absolutely, and just unfortunate. Uh, and it really says a lot about our nation and as well as a lot of other things that are going on right now. And so if you were in control and charge right now and you could use the pardon power any which way you wanted to, what would you do with it? Well, the first thing I would do, and this is actually something that Obama could have done, is to pardon everyone on death row. If 
Obama had done that. I mean, I, I realize you said that he did pardon a number of people, but if he had pardoned everyone on death row, Trump couldn't have executed anyone. So Brandon Bernard, who was the young man who was executed just a week or so ago, he had a clemency petition before Obama and President Obama unfortunately didn't he didn't pardon him. If Trump pardoned everyone who's in federal prison right now, that would be 250,000 people. 100,000, I'm sorry, 100 million people in the US right now have a criminal record. That's one in three. There are 2.3 million people incarcerated. So 40 people being pardoned, 100 people being pardoned, even 2,000 being pardoned. That is a drop in the bucket. I would use the pardon power so liberally to just write the so many injustices that have been perpetrated by the system. I really can't say enough about how much can be done with the pardon power that is good. We really need to be talking about how much right that be that can be done as opposed to these very small issues about uh, abuses of power. Now we don't have that much time left, but I wanted to clarify because yeah, I don't know you to be an abolitionist. So are you talking about in terms of when it comes to everybody in prison, pardoning them or giving them clemency when we're talking about death row? You know, I mean, there are some, you know, I think public safety is a consideration. Obviously, there are some people I think who do need to be kept apart from others to protect maybe children and, you know, people who have a propensity for violence, right? But honestly, when people have served more than, you know, a, a very significant amount of time in prison. I, I, I just can't see the purpose of, of holding them for a very long time. So I'm kind of talking like pardoning. Oh, like, right then. I, them, hey, if you're gonna go the distance, yeah, yeah. Hey, you know, stand by it, go for it. You know, the abolitionist movement it is taking up steam. And so, if people want to get more of your hot takes with, I know, Colin Kaepernick and everybody and their mama follows you on Twitter. Where can they find you? So my Twitter handle is Dr. RJ Kavanaugh, at Dr. RJ Kavanaugh, yeah. Fantastic, and that's Kavanaugh with no you, unlike that Supreme Court justice we will not mention. (laughs) Fantastic, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Adrian.